Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Monkeypox. Cases are rising in the U.S. And the WHO calls it a global health emergency. But an epidemiologist suggests advising high-risk groups to change their behavior. A new medical study may change the way doctors treat depression. There's been this long-standing theory that depression is caused by a lack of serotonin in the brain. Jury selection for the Alex Jones defamation trial is starting. We already know he'll have to pay. Only question is, how much? Outspoken activist Ennis Freedom has been without an NBA job for more than five months. He says criticism of one particular country got him ousted from the league. Unfortunately, when you talk about that issue, they're going to do whatever they can to silence you, and which is they did, and it's unfortunate and uh, sad. GOP lawmakers laying out their priorities to take back the majority this November. What their top priorities are on energy and law enforcement. Rapper Lil Wayne says he owes his life to a police officer, that he never knew racism because of him. Today, the rapper took to Instagram to send him one last message. Actor Paul Sorvino died today at the age of 83. He's best known for his role as a mob boss in the movie Goodfellas and an early stint on the show Law & Order. Born in Brooklyn, New York, Sorvino earned a Tony nomination for his role in that championship season. According to his publicist, Sorvino died of natural causes. His wife, Dee Dee, was by his side. The actor is survived by Dee Dee and his three children, including actress Mira Sorvino and five grandchildren. And in public health news, the World Health Organization says that everyone who gets a monkeypox vaccine is essentially part of a clinical trial to collect information on whether the shot is effective. The comments came as the agency's director general overruled the WHO advisory panel and declared monkeypox a global health emergency. It's the agency's highest level alert. The last time the WHO issued such an emergency was in early 2020 when it made the same declaration for COVID-19. An official from the WHO said the monkeypox vaccine's efficacy isn't known because it hasn't been used in this context or on a large scale before. He said that the monkeypox vaccines are being delivered in the context of clinical trial studies. The FDA has licensed two vaccines for monkeypox, ACAM 2000, known as Imvimune or Imvinex, and Gineos. And cases rise in the U.S. Some are asking, is declaring a global health emergency the best way to contain this outbreak? Here to speak with us is epidemiologist and former WHO and HHS scientist, Paul Alexander. I spoke with him earlier today. Dr. Paul Alexander, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, the WHO has declared monkeypox a global health emergency. With 16,000 cases this year alone, is that enough to warrant a global health emergency? Well, I think the biggest issue that we have right now with this declaration is that uh, the Director General Tedros, uh, he went against his own internal advisory board, nine to six, they voted against this recommendation. So I don't think the evidence is there. And I think the real question and the real challenge that WHO is faced with now, as well as the CDC in the United States, NIH, et cetera, is that at present, 
unless we know otherwise, we know that this, uh, this, this virus is still relegated to a particular high-risk group. And what has been glaring is the lack of proper public health information to the high-risk group in terms of what is the, the strategies and steps to mitigate risk. And um, so at this point, I, we, we don't see the data to warrant this declaration and this ramping up. And what we do want to see from them is being very clear and declarative to the high-risk group, which is we want um, proper acute contact tracing, um, isolation of those who are symptomatic. And basically, at this point, we are not seeing any basis for no masking, no no lockdowns, no, no discussion of this, no mass vaccination, etc. There is no basis for this at this point. This high-risk group that you've mentioned has been identified as men who have sex with men, primarily. Yes. Within this group, do you know if men who have multiple partners are spreading the disease more quickly? or? Well, look, look, this is a political correctness issue for most people, particularly politicians, and they're afraid to, to discuss the issue. Um, I'm, I'm basically not, because this, this is a health, a wellness, a public health issue where high-risk persons need the proper guidance. And um, if the high-risk group right now is the gay community, the bisexual community, then we need to tailor to them the proper guidance that will help them mitigate the risk. And most importantly, if it is by direct skin-to-skin -skin contact, which is what we are seeing at present, we don't have bona fide evidence of it being aerosolized, etc. So if it is skin-to-skin, -skin, we need to be able to tell the particular high-risk group what behavior, how they should go about mitigating risk, because they would be helping themselves and preventing the expansion to the low-risk general population. That's the key. We are trying to keep it contained, and we are trying to quash this virus in that group. But if WHO and CDC and the director Walensky and Dr. Fauci will not say, you need to tell the particular high-risk group that for the time being, two weeks, three weeks, etc., you need to constrain certain behaviors that would stop the transmission person to person. And we have some, we've seen some evidence from different persons who've, who've intimated that they do have, some do have multiple partners. That is a problem, especially, especially transmission from the bisexual community. Because remember, particularly women, and I want to be as clear as I could be, women, especially expectant women, pregnant women, women who are going into childbearing or deciding on childbearing, they remain always in any society globally the lowest risk group for any pathogen. That is the group that we always survey and we tap to see if pathogen has entered that group. They are often monogamous, low risk, very, very low risk. So we need to make sure that we don't let monkeypox expand into the heterosexual community and into this group. And the problem is bisexual males run the risk if this remains a skin-to-skin, -skin, intimate, sort of high-contact transmission virus of taking it to low-risk persons. Some very interesting points you've made there. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul Alexander. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And now to mental health. For decades, researchers have said that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. But is that really the case? 
According to a recent study, that connection may have been wrong all along. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. So there's been this long-standing theory that depression is caused by a lack of serotonin in the brain. Joanna Moncrief is a professor of critical and social psychiatry at University College London, and she's also a practicing psychiatrist. In a recent study, she and her team gathered all types of research that's tried to find evidence of an association between serotonin and depression. For example, research on serotonin receptors, serotonin levels, serotonin metabolite levels, research on genes, and research that's tried lowering serotonin levels in people without depression to see if it will induce a low mood. We got all the, the research from all these different areas together and took an overview, and none of the research in any of the different areas provided convincing evidence that there is a link between serotonin and depression, even that there's any link, and it certainly didn't provide evidence that depression is caused by or even linked with low serotonin levels. I also spoke with Dr. Peter Bregan, a psychiatrist who wrote scientific articles in the 1990s about there being no association between serotonin and depression. He's also the author of COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. When looking for a therapist, he says find one who's upbeat, caring, and seems to like and relate warmly to you. If the person instead uh, takes out a, uh, a pad of paper and starts to write a prescription, used to do that in the old days, now of course it's done electronically, or if the person uh, tells you you have a biochemical imbalance, which you know is untrue, if the person does anything except strengthen and encourage you to handle the world, go find somebody else, period. Both doctors I spoke with warned that no one should suddenly stop taking their antidepressants. And if someone does decide to do that, it should be done slowly and carefully with the support of a professional. Jason Perry, NTD News. And now to InfoWars host Alex Jones, who's facing multiple defamation lawsuits because of his statements on the Sandy Hook tragedy. Today, jury selection has begun in one of his three trials. It'll determine how much money Jones will have to pay the family of one of the Sandy Hook victims. A judge previously ruled that Jones has to pay damages to several families and an FBI agent who responded in Sandy Hook. Today's jury selection is for the first trial to assess the amount of those damages. The plaintiffs are the parents of a six-year-old who was killed in Sandy Hook. Jones is the founder of InfoWars. He said in the past that the Sandy Hook attack was planned so that the government could crack down on gun rights. The parents of the slain child claim they had to live through a decade of torment because of Jones's statements. They say people have called them liars and government conspirators. Jones's other two trials are set to start next month. And now to NBA free agent Anna's Freedom who has begun, been outspoken about human rights issues around the world, but he believes that it wasn't until he spoke of the abuses in a particular country that his NBA career was in jeopardy. NTD's Dave Martin has more. It's been five months since Ennis Freedom was traded by the Boston Celtics and then immediately released by the Houston Rockets. He has yet to get the callback to the NBA, though. Freedom was good enough to average a double-double, 11 points and 11 rebounds a game for Portland just a year ago. And at 30 years old, he's still in the prime of his career. Freedom, ever the activist, spoke at an event in Miami last week where he gathered with those who've been exiled from Cuba's communist government. I caught up with Freedom 
and he said the NBA had previously supported him when he talked about social justice issues through his first 10 years in the league. But the tune changed this past season. By my 11th year, I started to talk about the topic, China. Unfortunately, when you talk about that issue, they're going to do whatever they can to silence you, and which is they did, and it's unfortunate and uh, sad. By his 11th season, Freedom's outspokenness extended to the shoes he wore on the court. The 6-foot, 10-inch center decorated his sneakers with phrases like Free China, Free the Uyghurs, and Free Tibet. He was unofficially warned of what the consequences would be. One of my teammates walked up to me and said, listen, this is your last year in the league. Have fun, have fun, smile. I hope, we, I hope you win a championship, but you're not going to get another contract after this. Freedom has become the very rare person to choose morals over money. The third pick of the NBA draft back in 2011, Freedom has earned more than $100 million in his NBA career, but has decided these human rights issues are more important than making another $100 million. Freedom says he reached out to other professional athletes in leagues across the world to join him in his crusade, but he always got back the same response. Dad, listen, man, I think what you're doing is so amazing, so inspiring. We love you, we support you, but we just cannot, cannot do it out loud. When I asked him why, they said, well, we have shoe deals, endorsement deals, jersey sales, and we want to get another contract. Freedom had one important question in response. I said, put yourself in their shoes. If your mother, if your sister, or if your daughter was in those concentration camps, getting tortured and raped every day, would you still pick money and business over your morals, values, and principles? No answer. Although Freedom has lost out on a fortune in NBA salary in his crusade, he's gained the respect and admiration of millions around the world. Dave Martin, NTD News. And in election news, Republican lawmakers are using a D.C. summit as a platform to lay out their priorities. What are they vowing to do and how are they planning to take back the majority in the November elections? And when we take back the majority in November, we're going to get right on that, yes. Gathering at the America First Agenda Summit in Washington, D.C., GOP lawmakers vowing to win back the majority by addressing what's at the top of Americans' minds. Your car costs over 100 bucks to fill up your car. I mean, that's just killing families. People are not going to have any opportunities if we don't get energy under control. Citing high energy costs, Senator Rick Scott and his House GOP colleagues calling to drill more at home to boost energy independence. And it's time to put America first and use the resources that we are so blessed with right here in this country. And others turn to law enforcement, with Representative Mike Johnson laying out how a GOP-led Congress would work to prevent tragedies like the mass shooting in Uvalde. He says the country needs to focus not on guns, but on the human heart. We recognize that our rights don't derive from government. They come from God. The foundational principles of our country, the rule of law is one of those, right? Along with individual freedom and limited government and uh, peace through strength and fiscal responsibility and free markets, human dignity, the sanctity of every single human life. I think we need to begin there in addressing the problem, go to the root of it instead of trying to infringe upon the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens. Meanwhile, the calls come right as former President Donald Trump is set to speak at the same summit on Tuesday. It'll mark his first return to Washington since leaving office. We talked to the summit's organizer about what that means. 
he was the visionary behind so many of these policies, and we saw them work when they were in action. Now we've got the exact opposite. So for him to come out and lay that future out. Reporting Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Internet search results are saturated with bad and often controversial stories about cops. However, stories of life-saving actions by officers are rare to come by, like the story of an officer who's being mourned by a famous rapper. The rapper says he wouldn't be around if it wasn't for the officer. On Instagram, rapper Lil Wayne posted a goodbye note to a former officer he calls Uncle Bob. The rapper wrote, everything happens for a reason. I was dying when I met you at this very spot. You refused to let me die. Everything that doesn't happen doesn't happen for a reason. That reason being you and faith. Rest in peace, Uncle Bob. The officer's real name is Robert Hubler, and he recently passed away. The rapper says Hubler saved his life after he attempted suicide by shooting himself in the chest when he was 12 years old. According to NOLA.com, Hubler heard the police radio and responded to the scene with the other officers. He was off duty at the time. There wasn't any ambulance available, so Hubler, together with another officer, rushed him to the hospital. It's reported that Lil Wayne once said he never knew racism because of Hubler's actions. The officer told TMZ in 2021 that the raffer offered him financial assistance for life if he ever needed it. In the interview, Hubler said he did not accept the offer. And up next, over a thousand illegal immigrants have died crossing the southern border into the U.S. since President Biden took office. And that trend is increasing. And a U.S. lawmaker warning Americans about sharing their DNA with testing services. It has to do with bioweapons. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Over 1,000 people died crossing the U.S.-Mexico border since President Biden took office. That's more than twice as many as the same time frame under then-President Trump. Many factors make the journey harder and more dangerous than some might think. Here are the details. The U.S. is seeing a record number of illegal border crossings so far this year. More than 1.7 million people have crossed as of June, and the fiscal year is not over yet. The Customs and Border Protection Division chief says migrants imagine the journey to be easier than it really is. This mass migration issue is this group of people coming over here, they're not told how bad it can really be. They think it's just as simple as coming over, you're here and you're free and it's easy to go and it doesn't work that way. You know, and that's where we get into the injuries and the unfortunate casualties you know, across the entire southwest border. It's not just coming off of a piece of infrastructure, it's coming across a harsh terrain. They could fall anywhere in the mountainous terrains that we have across the southwest borders as well. Plus we have, the, you know, we have a lot of water issues where the rivers, they have to cross the rivers. Those are always traumatic that we have there. So they have to come across that as well. Last year was the deadliest for migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. The United Nations recorded almost 730 fatalities. The U.N. started keeping track of that number in 2014. Deaths in Arizona last year were the highest in four decades, according to local medical examiners. And in California, a San Diego hospital is seeing an increase in a specific type of injury. So the injuries that we're seeing and, and what we're really seeing the increase are patients that are falling from the border wall between the Mexican and the United States border, and they're falling directly into San Diego County, jumping over the border fence itself. 
In some sections, the wall is as high as a three-story building. Rescues by border agents along the southwest border have topped 14,000 since the start of the 2022 fiscal year. That's more than what were recorded during the entire 2021 fiscal year. We are receiving approximately about 16 calls a day, you know, every single day, 911 calls. According to the UN, this year's death toll is on track to be as bad or worse than last year's record-breaking toll. In response to the influx, Texas Governor Greg Abbott in April started sending buses filled with illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C. Now, a newly surfaced email shows an official of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, saying illegal migrants who had no family to pick them up in D.C. will be put on a train to Miami. It was obtained by the Heritage Foundation through a Freedom of Information Act request. The email was introduced as a quick update from FEMA. The email states, for this first drop, some were picked up by family members and the rest will be put on a train to Miami. Many illegal immigrants who are bused from Texas don't want to stay in D.C., but plan to travel to Florida or New York City. A Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee has warned Americans not to use DNA testing services. This has to do with bioweapons. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. At the Aspen Security Forum in Colorado Friday, Representative Jason Crow said people willingly send their DNA to testing and ancestry services, but that means those companies now own their DNA and can sell it, which means adversaries could potentially use it. You can actually take someone's DNA, take you know their their medical profile, and you can target a biological weapon that will that will kill that person or take them off the battlefield or make them inoperable. Crow said because foreign governments can collect Americans' DNA and weaponize it, U.S. officials need to have a public discussion about the protection of DNA information, healthcare information, and related data. About a year ago, Senator Marco Rubio warned that Chinese laboratories were processing the DNA tests of Americans via Medicare and Medicaid. He linked a 2019 report by the Office of Inspector General, which said the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services did not consider national security risks for any of their programs. In Rubio's July 2021 statement, he said, It's ridiculous that our current policies enable the Chinese Communist Party to access Americans' genomic data. There's absolutely no reason that Beijing, which routinely seeks to undermine U.S. national security, should be handed the genomic data of American citizens. In addition to the threat to humans, there's also a threat to U.S. agriculture, according to Republican Senator Joni Ernst. She's a member of the Armed Services Committee and was also on Friday's panel. She said adversaries could also create bioweapons targeting the U.S. food supply, using things like bird flu and swine fever. All of these things have circulated around the globe, but if targeted by an adversary, we know that it brings about food insecurity. Food insecurity drives a lot of other insecurities around the globe. Senator Ernst said, in addition to securing human beings, we also need to secure the food that will sustain us. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is warning about China's influence in the U.S. real estate market. He told Fox News Saturday he thinks companies linked to the Chinese Communist Party shouldn't be allowed to buy U.S. properties. A recent report from the National Association of Realtors says Chinese investors spent more than $6 billion on U.S. homes from April of last year to March of this year. That's more than any other foreign country. California was by far the top test destination, followed by New York, Indiana and Florida. Chinese investors are also buying more U.S. farmland, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
At the end of 2020, Chinese buyers controlled more than 194,000 acres in the U.S. That's up 1,300 percent from 2010. And former Tesla executive says he's going to build a battery materials plant for electric vehicles. This would be one of the first U.S. plants to produce these materials. It's a small step towards becoming less dependent on a country that dominates the industry. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Tesla's former chief technology officer is reportedly planning on building a battery materials factory in Nevada, the first in the U.S. to make important ingredients for electric vehicle batteries. His company, Redwood Materials, is spending $3.5 billion on the plant, which will make the U.S. less reliant on China. China today dominates about 80 percent of the global uh, lithium-iron battery market. Stefan Koster is a senior policy analyst at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Koster says that while China dominates, its market share is expected to drop as the electric vehicle market grows. Rather than having the materials brought to the United States to be assembled in plants that Panasonic or LG owns and operates, what we need to do is we need to build end-to-end -end, uh, supply chains from the, the basic lithium, cobalt, uh, uh, nickel, copper, etc., all those basic materials to the more complicated anodes, cathodes, along with the cells and the final packaging and manufacturing of the batteries. While the U.S. has been investing in battery production over the past two years, it's done very little regarding making the materials that are needed to make those batteries until the Redwood Materials Plant. They are the leader in uh, recycling of the batteries, and they totally makes sense for them to be able to manufacture batteries as well. Maxim Kaber is the marketing director at One Charge Lithium Batteries, which makes lithium batteries for industrial equipment. Kaber says the U.S. is at a disadvantage in regards to mineral refining, a key part of the battery making process. No, it's not that hard. Uh, it just requires uh, investment, and the investment has to be substantiated by the, um, uh, if not immediate, uh, at least mid-term profit. The profits are uh, harder in the U.S. because of the cost of labor and because of also because of the um, strict regulations. China currently makes around 90% of all anode materials and 80% of all cathode material. The race isn't over and they won't be the dominant player forever. Stefan Koster, the senior policy analyst, believes other countries will eventually catch up because they have enough of an incentive to do so. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen over the weekend downplayed concerns about a possible economic recession, but she recognized the economy is slowing down. This is not an economy that's in recession, but we're in a period of transition in which growth is slowing, and that's necessary and appropriate Yellen explained how many experts call a recession once we see two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. We've had one quarter of that, and this Thursday we'll know the GDP number for the second quarter, which many economists believe will be negative. But Yellen said even if that does happen in her eyes, that doesn't necessarily mean a recession. She says she looks at a broad range of data before calling a recession. Recession is a broad-based contraction that affects many sectors of the economy. We just don't have that. Consumer spending yeah. remains solid. Um, it's continuing to grow. There are some early signs of a U.S. economic downturn. U.S. business activity contracting 
for the first time in nearly two years in July. Also, the number of people applying for unemployment benefits has also been rising for several weeks now. Many believe a recession will hit the U.S. economy likely early next year with some investors even betting the Fed will then start cutting interest rates next year to try to revive the economy. The Fed is meeting this week and expected to announce a three-quarter percent rate increase on Wednesday. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And up next, there's a police shortage in San Francisco, California. And even more officers are thinking about quitting the force. One sergeant tells us why. And in an area near Yosemite National Park, a fire grew rapidly over the weekend, ravaging 17,000 acres. California Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency. That and more on NTD News. West Coast. The San Francisco Police Department is on the verge of losing a significant number of officers. One police sergeant tells NTD why that's happening and what it'll take to make the city feel safe again. San Francisco is facing a police exodus. Richard Sabati, sergeant at the San Francisco Police Department, told California Insider's CMAC Karami his perspective on why people want to leave SFPD and what it will take to turn things around. He illustrated just how many officers are thinking of leaving their position. People thinking about leaving and the plans on leaving. And uh, right now they're coming back with 54 percent are saying they're looking to leave or planning to leave in the near future. Sabati explains that as more officers leave, the more work they will be tasked with to pick up the slack. When you arrest somebody, you're going to have to write a police report about what happened. Um, in addition to that, you know, you have to book your evidence, you have to fill out your card to book somebody at county jail. Right now, due to the COVID restrictions that are still in place, even the process of booking somebody at county jail ends up frequently in hospital watches, where you have to take the person to the hospital and watch them there for hours and hours on end. So it's gotten frustrating for people, especially newer people who signed up for the job who want to go do police work to now be stuck either behind a computer typing about what they did or sitting with the person they arrested for hours, days at a time. Sabati says they are very short-staffed, he said they employed close to 1,900 officers in 2019. There were over 1,600 at the beginning of this year. He said the city hasn't seen such low numbers in over a decade. Sabati explained that there are fewer and fewer people who would want to join the police academy to train to be full-fledged officers. He said there's no hiring gains after factors like retirement and resignations are included. Whether you want to do it uh, you know, voluntarily because you're looking to make more money or uh, for younger people they're falling into a lot of the mandatory overtime that's starting. It's you know, going to create burnout, uh, poor decision making, higher rates of you know, injury and then people just ultimately leaving because it's not what they signed up for to work you know, indefinitely. Sabati explains that they are only a component of the criminal justice system. When they catch criminals, but if people aren't prosecuted, then they go back to the streets. He gives a recent example of a homeless man with mental health issues who likes to fight and bite the police. A couple months ago, he bit one of our officers. Um, pretty good you know, bite on the arm. Wow. It went to, to the prosecution side, and as far as I know, nothing's happening. 
So then last week we have him again and he goes and we get in a fight, a couple of cops get injured, um, he bites a couple more cops and this is like, you know, that, those are two recent examples but he's got a long history of fighting the police and, you know, getting there where cops now get injured. So now we have a twofold problem of more cops are getting injured so we have fewer left to respond to calls and then now you have this guy who has escalated violence and even against the police. Sabati says there will need to be a large cultural and political shift which includes bringing in other voices in an increasingly progressive city. He hopes there is a will to want to change so San Francisco can be safe like what he experienced growing up. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. To watch the full program, find California Insider on YouTube or Epic TV on the Epic Times website. And staying in California, a fast-moving wildfire near Yosemite National Park burned out of control through Sunday. The fire is now considered one of the state's biggest fires of the year, covering nearly 17,000 acres only about two days in. Here are the details. California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency for Mariposa County on Saturday due to the growing oak fire. Smoke from the blaze is visible from space. Cal Fire said the wildfire had burned nearly 17,000 acres of forest land in an update Monday morning. Currently the acreage of the oak incident is 16,791 acres and is 10% contained at this moment. The blaze broke out on Friday in the Sierra Nevada mountain area, nearly 30 miles southwest of Yosemite National Park. Officials described the fire as having explosive behavior, which poses a significant challenge to the over 2,000 firefighters battling the blaze. On a fire of this magnitude, I, man, unless that fuel break is two and a half miles wide on this one, I, it was, I, I can't even fathom to tell you the spotting that we are seeing and the fire behavior we are seeing on this. I'm, I am, that's why when I sit here and, and talk with you, I, I am super happy that I have no severe injuries of anyone in the public and, and also anyone on our, on our fire engines. Sierra National Forest said the oak fire was throwing embers out in front of itself for up to two miles recently. The ongoing drought and bone-dry vegetation gives the blaze exceptional fire conditions. Firefighters are at it 24 hours a day. It's been a couple days now, so we have all the engines reaching out and trying to touch every house available, make sure there's no hidden fires around decks and wood piles, etc. Cal Fire says as of Monday, flames destroyed seven residential structures and threatened over 3,000 more. Over 6,000 residents fled their homes and businesses. One family had lost their cat while trying to evacuate. And uh, we have a cat that likes to go outside, and so we were able to get one dog and one cat, and we had to just open the gate to let our chickens save themselves, um, but we couldn't find Dakota. She said her family kept praying and calling the sheriff's department, and luckily, animal control found him. And so he is at the shelter right now. We're actually hoping to go get him right now. And so our daughter and our son are just so thrilled. Spot fires in the mountains can be seen through a fire response aircraft on Sunday night. You can see very active. And as we move down, we'll get to the Lima November break, which is very active. And you can see we've got some spot fires in this area and on the map. 
Pacific Gas and Electric stated that over 3,100 homes and businesses have lost power. The electric company is unable to reach the affected equipment, so they are unable to determine when power will be restored. According to CAL FIRE, the cause of the fire is still under investigation, but CAL FIRE is optimistic and expects full containment by July 30th. And after Californians have spent months leading the nation and suffering at the gas station, prices are finally beginning to drop. Prices in Southern California have continued to drop for 40 days in a row so far. NTD's Daniel Hall has the details. According to AAA, California's nation-high gas prices are finally starting to go down. The average gas prices in Los Angeles County have dropped to $5.78, the lowest amount since April. This is a 67-cent decrease over the past 40 days. Orange County's average price has also been falling. Gas prices have dropped 71 cents since rising to a record $6.41 on June 12th. The recent drop followed national trends of decreasing prices at the pump. But gas prices in Southern California still sit higher than those across the nation. The national average is $4.36, almost $1.50 lower than California's $5.73 average. San Francisco sits slightly above L.A. at $5.80 per gallon. That's down from $6.46 one month ago. Prices in neighboring Silicon Valley fell by a similar amount. Meanwhile, California's gas tax recently increased by almost $0.03 cents a gallon. This scheduled increase hits consumers every year on July 1st. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Coming up, another Chinese rocket is set to crash land on Earth. A geopolitical analyst and space expert says it could hit the U.S. And the Hungarian prime minister gives his take on the war in Ukraine. He says that sanctions against Moscow have not worked and that a new strategy is needed to deal with the conflict. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. China has launched the second section of the Chinese space station. Beijing is one step closer to completing construction of the Tiangong space station by the end of this year. The laboratory module was launched Sunday on the Long March 5B rocket. But here's the thing everyone's concerned about. The Long March 5B is now making an uncontrolled re-entry back to the planet. To put it simply, it's going to crash on Earth. Where? Not even China knows. An expert tells NTD's Don Ma that China may be purposely putting people in danger by not installing safety equipment that allows the rocket a controlled re-entry. Brandon, thanks for being here. You know, so China launched its Long March 5B rocket on Sunday, but now the rocket's boosters is set to fall back to Earth. And this thing's massive. It weighs over 20 tons, 10 stories tall. And it's making an uncontrolled re-entry. Now, Brandon, the chances of this huge hunk of metal burning up in the atmosphere is not very high, is it? No, thank you for having me. Um, but uh, the Chinese don't really seem to care about sort of collateral damage. You remember a year or two ago when the Chinese government launched uh, the first 
part of their modular space station, uh, part of the uh, rocket that took it up to space almost crashed on uh, New York. It was, you know, with, within striking distance of New York. And the Chinese uh, government, they just don't care. And we see this sort of wanton disregard uh, for the environment or for other countries' safeties, not just in space operations, but across the board when it comes to Chinese doing things on the international stage that might have negative implications for their neighbors or other parts of the world. They don't care because all they want in Beijing is the ability to have, in this case, a modular space station permanently orbiting the Earth and to enhance their capabilities in space relative to those of the United States. Now, you mentioned China may not very well care about this, and you said it might hit the U.S. Can you just elaborate for us the risks, all the risks that are associated with an uncontrolled reentry? Yeah, yeah. So first, the Chinese government, of course, always says, no, no, this is not going to hit anybody. Don't worry about it. The Americans used to do this all the time during the Apollo era. It's fine. Um, but of course, we can't really take their assurances um, because they have such a bad track record in terms of safety. Um, this uh, uncontrolled reentry very well could hit another country, could hit the United States, could hit India. It could hit any country, you know, really that's in its path. And because it's so large and it is uncontrolled, the Chinese really can only kind of guess where that, that uh, booster may end up. And so pretty much the world needs to be on alert. And this is not a healthy way or obviously a safe way of conducting space operations. When the United States or even Russia or Japan or Israel or India or, or any other space power conducts launches, they do it in a relatively responsible manner. They calculate where the boosters are going to return, any space debris that might be generated. They alert every country that might be impacted well ahead of schedule so everybody can prepare. The Chinese, because they're a purposely opaque system, the communist system there, they don't share information. They don't want to look bad. And so um, they're not going to tell us the truth. And as the Chinese space program increases its activity in space, and it is, we're going to have to always be living on edge. So the bottom line is I hope everybody in the world is insured from Chinese space debris, because eventually these things are going to hit a populated area. Now, Brendan, I'd like to point something out. You know, the larger the space debris, you know, the more pieces that are going to break up and fall back to Earth. So what are the chances that will actually hit a person? Well, it's, it increases the more that the Chinese do these space operations and the larger, as you said, the larger the equipment that they put into orbit is, and that means that they're going to need larger boosters and larger rockets taking them into orbit. Those rockets, or at least part of them, will return to Earth. They are not uh, reusable rockets like Elon Musk and SpaceX have innovative, uh, innovatively developed. Uh, the Chinese are working on that as well, but they have this leap without looking mentality, so they're using whatever technology they have at their disposal. So yes, as they increase their presence and operational tempo in orbit, those systems will crash back to Earth, and eventually they're going to hurt and kill people. It's only a question of when, not if. I see. Brent Weikert, author of Winning Space, thanks for coming on again. Thank you. Over to the UK, the Chinese regime is accused of faking a bomb threat, which led to the arrest of a human rights activist in London. 
A vocal critic of the Chinese Communist Party, Drew Pavlu, said a fake email matching his name claimed he would blow up the embassy because of Beijing's repression of the Uyghurs. More on this from NTD's Jane Wirrell. Australian human rights activist Drew Pavlo was arrested here in the UK over false bomb threats sent to the Chinese embassy. An email claimed he would blow up the embassy, that's the building behind me, over Beijing's oppression of the Uyghurs. That email was sent to the police, who then arrested him. Pavlo says the email and the accusations have been fabricated by the Chinese regime and that he was peacefully protesting outside. They've made up this email claiming that I sent in a bomb threat. It's just absolute insanity. Pavlu, a vocal critic of the Chinese Communist Party who speaks out for those persecuted in China, has not been charged but remains on police bail. London's Metropolitan Police confirms that a man was detained at the Chinese embassy last Thursday. Police say he was offered legal advice and he attempted to glue his hand to the outside of the embassy. Pavlu says he was denied access to Australian consular authorities, but he did try to glue his hand with a Taiwan flag on the front gate of the embassy. He says this has nothing to do with a bomb threat. Pavlou says that the Chinese embassy reported him as a terrorist and the UK police arrested him. The bomb hoax email was sent from an account called DrewPavlou99 at protonmail.me, an account which he says he's never seen. There are also reports of a fake email which appears to be signed by the Crown Prosecution Service and attacks Michael Pollack, the barrister working on his case. Not long after his arrest, an article published by Chinese state-run Global Times attacked Pavlou. Pavlou was planning to return to Australia on Sunday and has got in touch with the Australian High Commission. He's calling on the police to investigate the Chinese embassy's involvement and to allow him to go home. Jane Warrell, NTD News, London. Turning now to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban told the European Union to change its approach to the war and that sanctions against Moscow have not worked. A new strategy is needed, which should focus on not winning the war, but instead on peace talks and drafting a good peace proposal. Orban said the EU should not stand on the side of the Ukrainians, but between Russia and Ukraine. He said that the Western strategy has been built on four pillars, that Ukraine can win a war against Russia with NATO weapons, that sanctions would weaken Russia, that sanctions would hurt Russia more than Europe, and that the world would line up in support. Speaking in Romania, Orban said this strategy has failed as energy prices have surged, governments in Europe are collapsing, and a likely recession will cause more political instability. He also said that Ukraine will never win the war because the Russian army, army has dominance. And Russia today brushed aside alarm after a missile strike by its forces on Ukraine's port of Odessa. The strike follows a UN-brokered deal aimed at easing global food shortages by resuming grain exports from the Black Sea region. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov offered reassurances over Russian grain supplies to Egypt at the start of an African tour on Sunday. His arrival comes amid uncertainty over a deal signed between Russia and Ukraine to resume Ukrainian exports through the Black Sea. But on Saturday, Russian missiles hit the major Ukrainian port, Odessa. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky called the attack barbarism that showed Moscow could not be trusted to implement the deal struck just the day before with Turkish and UN mediation. Video released by Ukraine's military showed damage in Odessa. The military said two missiles hit the area of a pumping station and two more were shot down. 
Russia said on Sunday its forces had hit a Ukrainian warship and weapons store in Odessa. Speaking in Cairo, Lavrov reaffirmed the commitment of Russian grain exporters to meet all their commitments. In a press conference with his Egyptian counterpart, Lavrov said there was a common understanding of the causes of the grain crisis. Since the start of the war in February, Russia's Black Sea fleet has blockaded Ukraine's ports. That's trapped tens of millions of tons of grain and sent global food prices soaring. Russia blames Western sanctions and Ukrainian mines in the Black Sea for the crisis. For Egypt, it's created a political dilemma. It's one of the world's top wheat importers, with 80% last year coming from Russia and Ukraine. Because of the war, Cairo is torn between long-standing ties to Russia and its close relationship with Western powers. Russia has continued to supply wheat to Egypt, selling to both the government and the private sector. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Lavrov says that any ships coming to Ukrainian ports to pick up additional grain would be inspected for weapons. Wheat prices rose on Monday shortly after the Russian strike on Odessa. And up next, world records are hard to come by, but some Americans were lucky enough to have a Guinness record experience over the weekend. How does it feel to be part of a world record? Stay tuned for more when we come back. Over the weekend in a Chicago suburb, thousands of people had a blast bouncing in the Big Bounce America. Guinness certified it as the world's largest bounce house. How does it feel to have a Guinness record experience? Let's hear the story. Over the weekend, thousands attended the Big Bounce America pop-up event in a Chicago suburb. The main inflatable house covers an area of over 16,000 square feet and measures 32 feet tall at its highest point. It's been dubbed the world's largest bounce house by the Guinness Book of World Records. Danielle Hodge, tour manager with the Big Bounce America, talks about the four main features of the event. We've got the main castle, which is one of, that's our main event that everybody comes for. Uh, there's a DJ booth inside. He's playing games with the kids. There's like confetti blasts and bubbles. Another feature, Sports Slam, is packed with action. Sports Slam is basically like a dodgeball arena, and it's got basketball hoops on the sides. It's got um, some jousting sticks, just a lot of unique things you can do in there. For people who want to have a speed competition, the Giant is where they can challenge each other. We've got the Giant obstacle course, which is a four-lane obstacle course. I think it's about 900 feet, and that's one where, uh, for the little kids, it's a little tougher. But the adults, they have a blast on that because it's just like they're challenging each other on that. Airspace is a unique space-themed wonderland. We've got airspace, which is a bunch of ball pits. You've got a really, really tall slide. You've got an alien. There's just a lot of weird, unique things you could check out, and it's really great. Heaven Ross from Michigan says the slide was her favorite. It would be the slide, the big slide over there. I, I don't know what the name is, but I know it's really fun. Kevin Butler from a Chicago suburb gives a big thumbs up to the giant bounce house. It was super fun. Definitely a 10 out of 10 rating. Uh, best place in uh, Illinois by far. The Big Bounce America will inflate again from Friday to Sunday, and then it will travel to Albany, New York in August. In September, it'll head to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Brooklyn, New York, and Columbus, Ohio. 
Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.